food bloggers. Hi, how are you today? Thank you so much for tuning in to the Eat Blog Talk podcast. This is the place for food bloggers to get information and inspiration to accelerate your blog's growth and ultimately help you to achieve your freedom, whether that's financial, personal, or professional. I'm Megan Porta, and I've been a food blogger for over 12 years. I understand how isolating food blogging can be at times. I'm on a mission to motivate, inspire, and most importantly, let each and every food blogger, including you, know that you are heard and supported. Most of you know and love Casey Markey from MediaWise. He is our favorite SEO expert. He joins me in this episode and he gives us such an in-depth look at SEO as we go into 2023. The information he delivers in this episode has a little bit of a different spin than previous episodes. It's more big picture. It paints a picture about what we should be thinking about as we create our content in 2023. Enjoy the episode. I know you're going to love it. This episode is number 372 and it is sponsored by Rank IQ. Hey, awesome food bloggers. Before we dig into this episode, I have a really quick favor to ask you. Go to your favorite podcast player, go to eBlog Talk, scroll down to the bottom where you see the ratings and review section. Leave eBlog Talk a five-star rating if you love this podcast and leave a great review. This will only benefit this podcast. It adds value. And I so very much appreciate your efforts with this. Thank you so much for doing this. Okay, now on to the episode. Speaker, writer, and trainer Casey Marquis is the founder of digital consultancy company MediaWise. He is a well-known SEO professional with 20 plus years of experience. Casey has trained SEO teams on five different continents. He has spoken at over 100 conferences, and he has worked with thousands of bloggers in the food, lifestyle, and travel niches. He also collects comic books, enjoys watching trashy reality television with his wife, Tiffany, and he believes bacon should be its own food group. Hi, Casey. How are you? Thanks for joining me again here on eBlog Talk. How's it going today? Fantastic, Megan. It's a couple weeks before Christmas. I'm knee deep in my honeydew list from the wife. There's offices filled with lots of uh, giveaways and presents to wrap. Uh, we are fully 100% deep in, in festive spirit this year. Oh, you are not alone. I think that's a common theme amongst all of us. Do you have a fun fact, Casey, to share? I know you've shared quite a few here, but do you have another one? Yeah, a little fun fact is I run a charity. I actually, uh, my wife and I have been involved with uh, an event called Christmas Armageddon that we run out of our home. This is our 17th year of doing so. And it is a charity event that we run on behalf of local charities. This year, we're going to be doing it to benefit the Baja Animal Sanctuary, which is a no-kill shelter based in Baja, California, uh, around Rosarita area. And we've adopted two or three of our dogs from there over the years. And they always have a shortfall. At Q4, so we we find that the this is our little way of giving back. And basically, what it is is it's a it's a large Christmas party. We've run it out of our home. Usually, we have anywhere from 100 to 200 people in here. It's a catered dinner. It's an ugly sweater contest. We have <laughs> thousands of dollars in donated goods and services from local businesses. And my wife makes up baskets. It's basically a, kind of a what do you call those the Chinese auctions, I believe is what they are. And you, we have that and then we have massive giveaways. But yeah, it's uh, that is this Saturday. So I don't know when this will air, but it'll be on Saturday the 10th this year. And our goal, of course, is always to raise as much money as we can and then present a check to the charity. Last year, we raised uh, $5,600. Oh, that's amazing. I love that. Hopefully, we'll be able to beat that this year. So you said 17th year, is that right? Yeah, 17 years, 17 years. It just ensures that everyone, it ensures that we actually have a party and... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's just our chance to get to to clear our house of stuff that we don't want. So there's a lot of built-in uh, benefits to us as well. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Win-win all around, right? <laughs> absolutely. Well, good luck with that. I hope everything goes great. I'm sure it'll be fun. But you're here today to talk about SEO. We, all of us, know and love Casey Markey because you provide such great SEO knowledge. Thank you for all of that. So 2023 is coming soon. By the time this is published, it will be just upon us. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you have some SEO predictions for us. But first, I have a question about something you mentioned last year. Mm -hmm. You mentioned this new torrent of food bloggers coming into the scene. You just said, oh my gosh, there are so many. It's crazy competitive. Is that still the case? Are things growing? Have they calmed down? Are, have they regressed? What is the situation? 
That's a good question. And again, I don't have the domain registration numbers yet. That's usually published towards the end of December. So we're kind of a little bit early for that. But as I mentioned when we spoke last year, it's just that everyone and their mother decided to start a food blog while they were home during the pandemic. And uh, about 30% of the audits that I had in 2022 were from bloggers who had less than one year experience. Hmm. So it was pretty crazy. Uh, And the thing about these bloggers is that they've they've come in quickly they're investing in the best plugins they're investing in the best themes they're getting audits as soon as they can to get on the right track and it's amazing how fast they are growing we've had i've got multiple examples of bloggers uh, who literally have not been blogging for more than a year or two years and they're able to make this a full-time income it's very impressive you know sometimes that's discouraging yeah. some of the older bloggers that i visit with i'm like oh gosh what is going on I'm like well they don't have a lot of the baggage that you have and they're able to <laughs> kind of pivot very quickly in the initial process to get things moving but yeah i've still seen that i don't know if that trend is going to carry over into uh 2023 we know that regardless of what all the doom and gloom has been the job market is great uh, anyone who wants a job can basically get one these days job numbers especially just that were just released here for november uh, were very impressive so i don't expect that you know a lot of people who are losing their jobs are either uh pivoting to something else or you know again there's always the the chance that they're just taking a little time off and maybe deciding to change career paths and blogging is still a viable opportunity. Are you saying that I have baggage, Casey? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. You know, I, <laughs> my wife would say that I have all the baggage <laughs> in marriage, but uh, yeah, it's very common. A lot of bloggers have a lot of content that they just forgot so about. I, yeah. I have bloggers all the time who come to me. I'm like, well, I just don't understand why I'm not doing as well as I should be. And I'm like, well, here's an analysis of the 600 plus blog posts on your site and 47% of your traffic is not coming from 300 of these blog posts. So what do you think we need to do to address that? So we'll we'll talk a little bit about that with regards to predictions for 2023. So why don't you dig into some of your predictions? Be our fortune teller. Absolutely. Fantastic. So we've got a couple ones here. The first one that we're going to talk about is that Google will continue to push out updates. And as you're aware, Google has been doing this for years. We have a, a lot of updates. Sometimes they they are announced, sometimes they're unannounced, but there's three kinds of updates that bloggers need to focus on in 2023. And those are helpful content updates, those are product updates, and those are core updates. Those are basically the three classes of updates that bloggers should be aware of. As many of you are probably aware of the helpful content update, which was pushed out by Google in August of this year. The helpful content update introduced a new site-wide classifier, which Google is using to detect content written primarily for search engines. And that's content that you know maybe you've written because you think it'll ring, not necessarily because you're fulfilling a need of your users or filling in content gaps on your site. And these new site-wide classifiers affect entire sites. It's a machine learning system that learns over time, and it's continually running at Google's end. You're going to find that these helpful content updates are going to be the par for the course as we go into 2023. You're going to see that they're going to be refined. They're going to be – we're probably going to see updates to the information that Google publishes. I'll provide a link that you can put in the transcript for the information. Google has provided a whole page on what this helpful content update is and what it's targeting. When did that initially come out? Was that in August of this year? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, August. Mm-hmm. All right. So you think that that is just going to be continue to be revised and we're going to keep seeing that? Absolutely, because it's a learning system algorithm. So Google has to continually rerun it. Uh, and most likely, we're going to see updates to the document page as well. They it wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, the next one that we have are product updates. Product review updates are something that we saw a lot of in 2021. These are rolled out because there are so many websites that are ranking for product review content that are not helpful or uniquely valuable. Product reviews are not something that really affect a lot of lifestyle and food bloggers, but they can affect you, especially if you're doing a lot of advertorial or sponsored content or you're doing lifestyle content, which just involves you regurgitating product reviews from other websites, which I do still see every now and then in audits. So Google likes to see evidence of you using a product and not just rehashing what others have said online about a specific product or service that you're recommending. So that's something that bloggers need to be aware of. So maybe you have a piece of software that you really like and you tend to write a lot of comments or a lot of posts about that product. Very important that if you're going to do that, that that content is unique and that you're not regurgitating a lot of that information back and forth between those reviews, even if it's a long-time provider, manufacturer, or tool suite owner that you've been working with. Does this apply to 
affiliate, like if we, I don't do this much, but I know some bloggers who write posts about affiliates. So they'll write like, I don't know, an example, super cubes, super cube trays. And then they'll write an entire post, like why it's good. Here are some recipes you can use, that sort of thing. Well, yeah, especially if they're doing six or seven posts on super cubes. Okay. So that's the kind of stuff that you really want to work on quality, not quantity. Google, again, Google likes to see evidence of you using the product yourself making sure that you're using your own personal experiences, not rehashing what others have said online about that product, but also that the content you're publishing has a need, fulfills a need for the users. And it's not just you writing a review because the service expects you to do so at regular intervals on your site. Got it. Okay. What's the next type of update? And the last one is core updates. And I know many of you are familiar with the core updates. The core updates have been running uh, for about four and a half years so far. And Google, these are the only updates that Google really announces on a regular basis. We had a kind of a core update in September that went through. We also had core update last May and, and the like. And core updates happen approximately quarterly. Now, Google doesn't give us a lot of specificity about what has changed, but they usually refer to their article on what site owners should know about core updates. And so Google has a, an article on that. And again, I'm happy to share that link to you in the, in the follow-up. But Google determines a large scale, determines at scale what they consider low-quality content. And a core update is basically designed and roll out to impact weaknesses in the algorithms that they're seeing at scale. So these impact a large group of sites, and content quality is a big component of core updates. And so Google has always said, hey, we want to get better at understanding intent, and that's what these core updates are about. You know, For example, one of the big core updates, a lot of core updates we've had over the years have been targeting specific mismatches in intent. The 2000 update, exactly, now that I think about it, targeted a lot of issues with bloggers trying to to go after keywords like chicken recipes and dinner recipes where they weren't necessarily the most qualified result. And there was an over-optimization component involved in that. And we saw that again pushed out in June of 2021 and other updates. And so again, these these core updates are something that Google that that Google is going to do regularly, that they do announce about usually on Twitter through the search liaison account. And it's something that bloggers need to kind of accept. It's it's not something that you can really prepare for, even though Google has a whole page on core updates and what it involves, but it's just something that we we live with. It's that Google is continually to refine uh, intent matches to make sure that they, when people are looking for something, they're finding what they need. And sometimes that can have a positive effect and sometimes that can be, have a negative effect. And it's certainly something that bloggers need to be aware of and, and, and try not to take personally in most regards. <laughs> and not to stress about, right? Exactly. We can't, we, we can't do anything about it. We just, we move on. Some updates help you, some updates hurt you, but it all evens out in the end. Is there anything we can keep at the top of our minds to navigate through these? I noticed a couple themes like just, you know, creating authentic content, quality content. What else can we do to get through this without going crazy? Just always look at what is ranking in Google. One of the things that I see a lot of problems with in audits, especially in 2022, is an incorrect understanding of how how-to schema and recipe schema work. Uh, for example, if you're looking in a if you're looking at writing a post and it's it kind of has a how-to bent, like simple things like how to cut a tomato or how to peel a banana, that that is not a how-to schema related post. That's a recipe post. And one of the easiest things bloggers can do if they're ever confused by this is to go into Google, type in that phrase, and look for a recipe carousel. Because you know that if there's a recipe carousel, you should not be using how-to schema anywhere in that post because you will not qualify. So I run across this all the time, even from larger established bloggers. I don't understand why this post isn't ranking or why I'm not in the carousel because there's not a carousel for that schema and they just have to go in flip the card from how to to recipe and voila they pop right into the carousel so little things like that are very important so whenever you're putting together a post always look at what the current carousel considerations are for that query go into google find what's ranking and adjust accordingly that's easy enough okay what about some other predictions casey so the next one we're going to talk about is how visual content is impacted. I'm predicting to make a major impact on search rankings going forward. And we've seen that expand in 2022 with uh, Google starting to prioritize shorter TikTok-style videos on mobile and the expansion of carousels. For example, they added a completely new carousel for Google Discover, as an example. Now, image search is still a big deal, and it's very important that bloggers all over the place optimize their photos correctly. And I'll go ahead and paste over 
a link to our Top Hat Rank webinar on image optimization. And then, of course, the Google information on how to optimize correctly for images. But this is something that I still see a lot of. You know, video has always been confusing to blockers. Video is not a ranking factor. It has never been a ranking factor. But video is something that can increase visibility in the search results. The problem is the type of video and the type of visual content you're doing. One of the things that really caused a lot of consternation in 2022 was that Google basically expanded image search and video search, but they put it on their completely own tab. So for example, if someone is searching for a recipe video, especially on mobile, you're not necessarily going to see any of the recipe videos right on your de- on your mobile screen. You're going to have to go up and choose the tab that says videos. Do you know how many people don't choose the videos mm-hmm. tab? The vast majority of people. So concentrating a lot on that may not be the best use of your time. If you if you have the ability to add video to your top performing recipes, great. You'd certainly want to do that. But video, for example, is not going to miraculously take you to the next step. But what Google is working on is prioritizing these shorter TikTok style videos on mobile and carousels. And we've been seeing some limited success and bloggers uploading their regular videos to the recipe card and then putting a shorter, more optimized TikTok-style video in the post. And they've been playing around with that to limited effect. And we'll see how that goes. Now, it's very possible that Google changes or updates video schema guidelines in 2023 to more prioritize that since we know that TikTok and, and Facebook and Instagram are still going that route. But honestly, in regards to video, Google is a little slow in best practices, so we'll just have to wait and see. But visual content is, of course, projected to be a bigger focus in 2023. It always is. And it's just something to keep on your radar. So not a ranking factor, but... Definitely, definitely not yeah, a ranking factor. But definitely no. have it at the top of your mind when creating new content. Absolutely. And do you find that the more curated, highly curated videos are kind of not as important anymore? I feel like that's the trend that I've been hearing. Just that TikTok style that's more real and raw is seeming to be trending. Do you agree with that? I would say that that seems to be stickier for users who are trying to get people to actually click over and watch the whole video or expand their cross-video offerings. You know, they watch one video, get hooked, and find other videos on the site. It's hard to say. Uh, the hands and pans videos are still very popular. I see those all the time. I don't think that those need to go away. Uh, there is something to be said about the more general, more relaxed, I'm in the kitchen here, watch me make this, you know, and then they change video angles and all of that. I think that there's something to be said about that. But I have a 19-year-old daughter who's in her first year of culinary school, and she is watching videos and TikToks and stuff all the day when she's in the kitchen. But as God is my witness, she does not like to stop and start these videos. She'll watch them initially the first time, and then she'll pull up the recipe, and then she'll just flip through the process shots, which is why it's never a one or the other situation with bloggers. We always want to focus on both of those to have a fully enhanced visual experience uh, for a recipe post. This is a little bit of a sideline question, but it relates to videos. Where do you feel like in the recipe post a video should be embedded? This is kind of a topic of discussion within my circle. Should we put it in the post? Should we put it in the recipe card? Is it okay to do both? Do you have an answer to that? Well, especially if you're using a jump to video button and you use a jump to video button, it's automatically going to go to the recipe card. So that's a little, that's a mismatch. If you think about it, if you provide a jump to recipe button and you jump people to the video and you've moved the video out of the card to somewhere else, that's clearly something that you should avoid. Okay, so if you have a jump to recipe button, you should have... Yeah, jump to video. Okay. If you have a jump to video, it operates different than the jump to recipe. Right. But if you have a jump to video, and I see this all the time, if you're using a jump to video on your recipe post and you're jumping people down to your video and it's not in the card, that's a problem. So we need to fix that or remove the jump to video link. There's plenty of opportunity for If you upload your videos to your ad companies, then you can, and you're using something like WPS Maker as an example, you can just move the video anywhere on the page and be just fine. I think that's totally acceptable so you can still get value i think that if you you know we use various things heat mapping is something that i really recommend because some sites seems to do great when we move the video out of the car to elsewhere on the pages and other sites just do terrible when we do that and so i would say that you really need to be installing something like hot jar or crazy egg and actually just signing up and spend 10 bucks to do some very simple heat map testing to see what seems to be performing better for users, the video in the recipe card or the video higher in the page. Usually we could easily do both. I don't see a really problem with that anymore. You you give your video to your ad companies. We monetize those at the top so they can kind of see it. 
we'll run a little an ad rule before the video and then the video plays. And then, of course, you also have the video on the recipe card as well if users want to interact with that. I don't see a problem with that at all. I always forget about heat mapping. <laughs> so thank you. I'm like, yeah. oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I just wrote it down. Okay. Is there anything else about visual content that you wanted to mention, Casey? Nope. That's good for now. So the next issue that we're going to talk about is optimizing for entities, not keywords. And this is called the continued rush of somatic search. Now, if you've been listening to me over the years, somatic search is not something that should be new to you. It's We've talked about it in the Food for Bloggers, uh, the SEO for bloggers webinars for years. It's something that's always been top of mind. Semitic SEO is the optimization of content around strings, not things. It's not really keywords, it's concepts. And this is a shift that has arose out of a Google patent covering content vectors that has been around since way back in 2012. And for those of you on the call who are, are aware of kind of, you know, you've always been using keyword research. Well, keyword research is really kind of a, the kindergarten of semantic search. It's it's kind of the entry point, but Google doesn't really use keywords like they did 10 years ago. And instead, they've kind of fully embraced what's called the knowledge graph, which you know, again has been around since about 2011, 2012. And to kind of put it in simpler terms, semantic SEO is all about understanding the different intents around similar words and concepts. So I think, Megan, we've talked about the fact that my wife and my daughter are equestrians, so we have a lot of horses. I always make a joke that every time I make a mistake in our marriage, I have to buy a horse, <laughs> so we have a lot of horses, but we we really don't have that many horses. I, they're smart. They're they're all bay horses, and they're all the same color, so they keep moving them around. I never, nice. have, no, I never have any idea how many horses we have, but you know, and for our purposes today, we'll use that as an example. The word horse has many different meanings in a lot of different contexts. You know, horse is an animal for an equestrian. It's a working tool for a carpenter, and it's a piece of sports equipment for a gymnast. Well, it's the same thing with various other keywords that go into your content. And how we do – and what Google has done is they've trained their algorithms over the year to understand the difference in intent based around these keyword phrases. And that's why entities are so important when we put together a recipe post. We want to understand all the different entities that go about into a post for, say, banana cream pie. Like uh, if someone puts together a top post for banana cream pie, and I think uh, my client, Chef Dennis of, of Ask Chef Dennis, I think yes. he has one of the top, if not the top, banana cream pie recipe in the world. And if you were to do uh, go and take a look at that post, there's various entities that you could pull out of that post that that he references in his H2s that make it clear what people are looking for when they're looking at this putting together a post for banana cream pie. And and that's what this is. It's just understanding how Google is using keywords to refine and present entities. And so when we when you hear things like BERT, which was an algorithm that Google has used to identify which keywords and queries are important, then Google has what's called RankBrain. And RankBrain helps Google understand which concepts are represented by those keywords. Then Google uses what's called neural matching which helps Google find pages that cover those topics well. And then finally, Google uses what's called passage ranking, and that helps Google find sections of pages that are relevant to those concepts. So for example, if we're trying to optimize for semantic SEO or semantic search for the home and do-it-yourself niche, this is very important. We'd want to make sure that when we're writing our content, we're putting detailed FAQs and putting together detailed guides and tutorials that make it easier for Google to understand all the various steps involved in the guides and tutorials that we're putting together. And then for the recipe niche, very quickly, this is where, when you had an audit with me, there's a very specific approach I recommend with recipes. It's something that I've refined over the years. It's something that I've put together based upon my the many usertesting.com surveys I've done with tens of thousands of people all over the United States, but it's also based on a very deep understanding of how semantic search works, which I think sets me apart from a lot of other SEOs in that I, this isn't stuff that we guess at. Google provides us all the information we need. You just have to understand it. So, for example, for a, a basic recipe post, we might have substitutions and additions. We might have uh, information on the ingredients. We might have a, a very select FAQ. Maybe we include produce guides, produce guides on our on our site that is a deep dive into very specific seasonal content we have. And that's the kind of stuff that Google's looking for when we're talking about optimizing for semantic SEO. 
Food bloggers, I want to take a really quick second here to talk to you about something new that we're starting this summer. I'm super excited about it. I am loving this new movement of food bloggers who are digging into podcasting as a way to add an awesome, unique new layer to their business. I feel so passionately about this topic. Audio is so powerful and food bloggers digging into audio in the form of podcasting is going to be a huge, successful movement It will be a way to expand your brand into new areas that you cannot even imagine. There is an entire episode dedicated to this. So go listen to episode number 306 if you haven't already. And I promise you're going to be inspired to dig into audio yourself. As a way to support this movement, I am creating a group coaching experience starting in June of 2022. If you are interested in joining us, there are a limited number of spots available just because I want to give you all my dedicated attention. Send me an email at megan at eatblogtalk.com if you're interested. I am including an introductory rate. It's a monthly rate. If you want in, you will be locked in at that rate. Send me an email. Tell me you're interested in the group coaching for podcasters. And I can't wait to see you inside. And I can't wait to see how this just totally explodes your business. All right, back to the episode. So making a very thorough post. This is what you've been preaching for years now, right? Like just creating a thorough post that's providing quality information to the reader. Yeah. And I think the, the, the confusion is that thorough does not need to be wordy. Thorough does not need, mean superfluous. Okay, we can write a thorough and a complete post that provides all the information the user needs, but is not 2,000 words long. And I think that's where I think a lot of bloggers get confused. A thorough post, for example, doesn't need to have four or five shots of the finished dish. A thorough post does not need to have two or three paragraphs on why this recipe means so much to you or that it was passed down to your grandmother when you were, when you were on a farm during summers in your childhood. You know, there is a there is a place for this, and that's the goal is understanding that there's a balance between the personality and the information you're putting in your post and the information that Google is looking for to return a fully complete, medically relevant post that asks and answers the questions of the user. And this is going to just continue being more prominent as the space gets more flooded, right? Like just yeah, yeah, it's more competitive. There is only the thing about the SERPs, about search engine, about rankings, it is a zero sum game. There are only so many spots. Okay. For you to win, someone else has to lose. That's how it works. So if you're asking yourself, what can I do to compete against these sites that are ranking above you? You have to beat those sites by writing better content. You have to understand what the intent is of the search. And when we talk about categories of user intent, and this is, again, all coming down to this optimizing for entities, not keywords, there are four categories of user intent that bloggers need to be aware of. Those are navigational, informational, transactional, and commercial. Now, for our purposes, uh, very briefly defined, navigational refers to when someone is trying to visit a specific website online. It's fine. Uh, Navigational would be I'm specifically going to my blog and typing in a a recipe I want to get to. Information would be those searches are done to find an answer to a specific question or to find information around a certain topic. So if I'm trying to answer a specific question or find information around, okay, how can I, for example, just the other day I was looking at uh, replacing, uh, oh, actually cleaning my kegerator. And I wanted to find an informational article giving me the step-by-steps on how to clean my kegerator. And so that was an informational context. Then we have transactional. And this occurs when someone is looking to make an online purchase, which is literally what all of us are doing right now in a mad dash as we head into the Christmas season. And then finally, we have commercial when people have the intention to make a purchase. So transactional and commercial are very close together. We have transactional when we're actually looking for information to make an online purchase. But then we don't. it doesn't become a commercial intent until we actually make the purchase. For most cases, for, for food and lifestyle bloggers on the call, you are in the informational intent section. Mm-hmm. Where you're targeting a user who's looking to find an answer to a specific question, find a specific recipe, find information around a specific content. That's your focus. And understanding how Semitic SEO works around that intent is really going to help you put your recipes together and really going to help you fulfill the needs of your user as you're putting together your content. This is framed in such a great way because it helps me anyway to just think about the bigger picture and not just like, oh, I'm going to go after that keyword. It's more about digging in like what are people wanting and it's the bigger picture and not just like you said earlier not just keyword research right right and this is kind of where the topic of topical clusters come into play you've probably heard that phrase before and the topical clusters is really kind of the building blocks of semantic seo what is who is your audience 
what questions are they using to find your content and what content can you provide around this content to meet those needs. Now, the good news is, is there's plenty of tools allow out there that concentrate or are built around Semitic SEO to allow you to pull out these 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 topical clusters. And I know you've been using, you know, RankBrain does this pretty well, allows you to provide complementary content that you can put around a, a post. You know, maybe you've written a post on how to make you know, on chicken dumplings, and now you're writing a post on complementary dishes to make around. Yeah. Chicken dumplings or something along those lines. But there are other tools out there that really kind of do this very well. We've got phrase.io. We've got wordlift.io. Key search. You've heard me talk about key search. Key search has a, an LSI keywords generator tool you can use. It's pretty good at pulling out related entities around keywords. You've probably heard of Surfer SEO. Market News is another option. These tools all do similar things. They allow you to service the individual topics and semantic keywords by means of a, of a kind of a – and again, I do, not, I do not want to bore your users with getting into this too much. But there's three ways that these tools use, how these tools operate. They all use three specific approaches to pull out these individual topics and semantic keywords. And they use a concept called phrase extraction, which is where they crawl basically a, a whole document of keywords, a whole document of a corpus of documents, pull out the keywords. And then after this phrase extraction, they have what's called graph analyses. And that's where they take all these keywords, and it doesn't matter which tool you use, so they all do the same thing. They take these keywords and they use graph analysis to find the topics that these keywords share. And then they use NLP, which is natural language processing. They'll run an algorithm against all those found keywords and topics to determine a relevant score. And that's what you're using when you ever go in. You're like asking, oh, my God, how do these keyword tools work? There you go. Phrase extraction, graph analyses, and natural language processing so they can pull this information together for a relevant score. So I can say, okay, if I'm concentrating on a relevant score for this and I want to concentrate on, say, 40 or above, which is you know pretty competitive, then here are the options that it gives me. Yeah, I don't think that's boring. I think it's really interesting to know how those come together and it makes me think deeply about food blogging. <laughs> who would have ever thought, That's the right? Goal, folks. Like 10 That's years the goal. ago, who would have yeah. ever thought we would be having this conversation? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is there anything else about semantic search, Casey, before we move on? Nope. Let's go ahead and move yeah. on to the next one. And the next thing that we're going to be talking about is how featured snippets are continuing to grow and increase. And you're going to see that in 2023. And, and featured snippets are something that many of you are familiar with. When we, those are the position zero results at the top of the search pages where you see, okay, if someone was to type in, you know, how do you cut a watermelon? You see how the position zero result is usually one big site. Maybe it's a segmented example, or there are other options when you were to type in something like, you know, who won the World Series in 1937? You know, there's a very quick answer to that at the top of the search with a link to more information. That's how featured, that's what a featured snippet is. And featured snippets can be both generated by structured data, and sometimes they can be just taken structurally off the page by Google. As food bloggers, food and lifestyle bloggers, we absolutely want to continue to target featured snippets because we we don't have a choice. There are many instances where we might be doing something that has a clear intent. And even though we think that Google should be showing a recipe post or something instead, instead they decide to pull up a, a position zero result instead, which is above everyone else, kind of very quickly answering the question. And the, the reason they're doing this is because, number one, they're trying to be helpful, but number two, they're trying to keep that traffic on their own website, on Google. They don't necessarily want them clicking to you. They want to keep that traffic for themselves, which, is, of course, is a, is a trade-off. So targeting featured snippets are something that all bloggers need to, to understand. And to do that, we have to basically do four things. We have to target long-tail keywords. We have to create in-depth content such as how-tos and guides. We also have to focus on the user intent when creating content. Clearly, if I'm doing a search for something and I see that there's a featured snippet at the top of the post or at the top of the search results, then we know the intent for Google to return a featured snippet is 100% match. And that's something that we need to steal. We also want to target the people also ask sections that you find whenever you do a search. Uh, Salisbury steak is a great example. If I was, I love Salisbury steak. If I was going to go to Salisbury steak and type that into Google, there's a whole section of people, PPAs, you know, people also ask questions. And the thing about these is that there's a lot of miscommunication, 
kind of incorrect information I see all the time in the recipe niche about the use of FAQ blocks in posts. If you are concerned that you shouldn't be using FAQ blocks in your post or in a recipe post because there was limited benefit, please get that out of your head completely. Completely incorrect, no data to support that assertion, none at all. Um, FAQ blocks are actually being used by Google to populate the people also ask questions, the PPAs. Salisbury steak is a great example. Uh, if you go to the Salisbury steak result on Google, there are no fewer than three of my clients in that PPA, all with different questions, all pulled from FAQ blocks on their site. And we want to use FAQ blocks in posts whenever we can because, number one, they look and they present very well. And if you use something like an accordion plugin to close up the FAQs, they present very well on mobile. So if someone wants to expand the FAQ, they just click on the accordion, it pops open, and they're good to go. So FAQ is definitely something that we want to continue to use. I think where the confusion lies is, and I've said this myself on the SEO for Publishers webinars, is that in posts, when Google sees recipe schema and FAQ on the same page, recipe schema is always going to be the primary schema. And that's fine. That's how we want it. But Google doesn't ignore the FAQ schema far from it. They're just going to be able to more easily pull out things like PPAs from the content, and that's what we're optimizing for whenever possible. So understand that that's not a trade-off. You can absolutely use both, but the only time the FAQ would ever be the primary schema would, it would be if you put, for example, an FAQ block on an About Me page or a guide or a how-to that didn't have a recipe schema. Then you would generate a, a little bit of a rich snippet from that, but it's certainly no reason to choose one over the other. They both work just fine together. All right. That's awesome. So we do want to get those featured snippets, right? Mm -hmm. don't, Absolutely. Right? Even though they don't always lead to traffic. Yeah. I mean, in many cases, you have to be one of the top five for the PPAs, but understand that those are, we call those ever, ever expanding accordions. So if I go to the Salisbury Steak and I, and I start choosing some of those PPAs, they'll immediately start generating more PPAs right below yeah. it. And so you'll see one like, uh, why is Salisbury steak so tough? And that's a PPA pulled from, um, in this example, Savor the Flavor, which is a former client. She has an exceptional answer to that. And she's literally, you can see the PPA in, in Search Console pulling in lots of lots of traffic for her. So they're there and they and they work extremely well. So definitely understand, again, please be aware of who you're discussing or who you're talking to or who you're taking advice from. This is me telling you based upon the evidence that I clearly see in Search Console, uh, FAQ block, nothing wrong with including that. I think there was some talk I also previously about how you could possibly over-optimize with FAQs. Again, not really seeing that because, we're, again, the FAQs, for example, for Salisbury Steak, you're talking about Salisbury Steak. It's okay to include right. Salisbury Steak in each of those FAQs. It's not a big deal at all. So just I don't see any evidence to say that this is bad, and I would certainly place my reputation on it. That's the recommendation I'm giving you today. So take that as you want. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Casey. All right. What's your next prediction? So the next one is we, we really need to talk about making sure that bloggers are aware of optimal. Oh, let's see. Uh, what's that? EAT. The last one here is EAT signals continue to push Google's definition of quality content. So we really need to understand and have bloggers kind of read, educate themselves on what EAT is and talk a little bit about how Google, how bloggers can improve their EAT. We'll paste this over at the end of the call today, but I have a webinar that I did on EAT where I interviewed Maria Haynes, Marie Haynes, who's a well-known SEO, whose one of her main focuses is on EAT expertise, authoritativeness, and trustworthiness. And we, it was years ago, but it's just as relevant today as it was then. But EAT is something that Google has been really pushing, and we, we've known about it for years, but 2022 was very revealing because with the August helpful content update, that was the first time that Google had signaled very clearly that high-quality content writing was more important than ever. Because if you had weak or low-quality content on your site, they were actually going to hurt you. That's why they said, hey, we need to no-index or remove this low-quality content because we're, we're grading your site. We're looking at your posts individually, but on an aggregate level, if you have weak low quality content, that's going to hurt you. And so recently as well, Google just announced that EAT is calculated on every single result in the index individually. And that's the first time that they've admitted to doing that. And I'll paste over uh, some great thoughts on from HG Kim, who's the vice president of search at Google. He just had a keynote at the most recent 
SMX Summit, where he publicly talked about the fact that at no other time in history has Google used more EAT signals than right now. Mm. And the thing that he pushed was that block, you know, they publish, Google publishes widely available radar guidelines that describe in great detail how their systems work to surface great content. I think previously when we had uh, these conversations, Megan, we talked about the Google Quality Radar Guidelines. I think you might even have linked to it previously in one of the other webinars we've done, one of the other podcasts. But Quality Radar Guidelines are something that every website owner in the food and lifestyle niche and outside the food and lifestyle niche should be reading. I know that it's a very boring material, <laughs> but if you ever do a find, a, a search and find, search and find by keywords, you guys are shocked at how many times they mention food and recipe in the Google Quality Rater guidelines. It is a lot. Interesting. Because we tend to have a lot of EAT issues specifically. We Google's really under wants to understand we're recommending something that's going to affect our health. This is food. It's a big deal. We want to make sure that their Google is really clear that they want to surface only the best recipes and the best content. So kind of back to this EAT issue, the thing to understand is that EAT influences rankings, but it's not a ranking factor. And I think that's confusing to a lot of bloggers. The thing is that Google's ranking systems have two components. They have a relevant scoring and a quality assessment. So when we talk about ENT, it can influence both of those, but it's not a ranking factor. Now, I'm going to, again, also paste over a report for you that you can share in the transcript. It's, again, by Olaf Kopp, and it's a, a very it's – it's a recent whole article that he did for Search Engine Land, which I'm, I'm fortunate to be a contributor to. And it's all about improving EAT, and it's around website entities. So that's why we've talked about entities and EAT today specifically. But when we talk about improving EAT, there's some very specific approach, and Olaf goes into several of them. But for our purposes today, we're just going to narrow it down and do a couple specific ones. The first one is just common sense. We want to create topic-relevant content. That that allows us to demonstrate our in-depth expertise. So, for example, if, if I'm writing, as Chef Dennis has done or, or any others, if they're writing a post that ranks number one in Google for a very specific process or something like like I, for example a good example would be soy vide soy vide cooking is that correct yeah, and i mispronounced yep. because yeah sous vide so sous vide is something that's a very popular topic in the marquee household because my daughter the culinary student is involved in a class right now doing it and so so she's probably going to get a sous vide yes, set yes, for Christmas. That's awesome. so shh, we'll keep that we'll keep that between yeah. us but that's something that showed the understanding or uh, being able to communicate that involves a lot of very in-depth expertise so you'll find if you look in Google around that topic, there is a very specific approach to content being taken. And we always want to look at what Google is ranking and then emulate that whenever we can around how they're demonstrating the in-depth expertise. The next one that we want to do is we want to expand what content you share on a topic. So as you, I think we mentioned this before, if you were to do something on Chinese dumplings and you know that it's ranking well, then what we want to do is kind of fill out the, con the topic clusters around that by saying again what would you serve other related chinese dishes to serve with dumplings or hey if we were to have dumplings here here are the other ancillary dishes that you know other ways for you to make sure to share that supposedly little things like that we'd want to expand on the content focus whenever we can very simple filling out like you said content gaps i think we've talked about yeah. that in the past yep doing that. The next thing that we want to do is we want to collaborate with experts. That's what I'm doing on the podcast here. By us talking together about this information, not only do I get a bump because I'm expressing it in a forum that is related to the niche that I'm working in, but you get a bump because you're you're basically associating with hopefully a known authority in the topic of SEO. Yes. Hopefully. <laughs> and that's how we talking about collaborating with experts. So if you have an audit with me, and I know you did, there was a whole section in your follow-up that listed various podcasts, including yours, where you can submit yourself as a guest and you can see that I've sent a lot of people your way. The goal is to make sure that we link out or we go and we find opportunities to reinforce and generate our own personal expertise by being on podcasts related to our target audience, by being in front of our specific audience whenever we can. Things like TED Talks, things like attending conferences, things like webinars and, and whatever. I mean, that's why I do so many podcasts, uh, webinars, speak at conferences all the time. I, 
I'm, I'm fortunate to have those opportunities, but it's a reinforcement of my existing expertise. This is a topic that I talk about a lot within my community too, because people are always talking about how to get that EAT. And I'm, I say the same thing, go guest on podcasts. And the response I always get is, I don't really know anything to talk about. I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys are food bloggers. You know so much. Yeah. As a matter of fact, that's, that's a good point. And so what I do is initially when we have an audit, I usually do a 90 second, tell me about yourself, tell me about your blog so that I can actually see, so I can visually kind of audibly pull out information that they're telling me what is unique about their blog. I kind of, I'm positioning them to understand that at the very beginning of the call because that's going to be important later. Your goal is to understand that you have a lot of learned experience based upon what you've done right and what you've done wrong as you've managed your blog. That is experience that other people would absolutely be interested in learning from. Agreed. Wouldn't you like to have listened to yourself three years ago and not made the mistakes that you did then? This is your opportunity to talk to that younger self based upon your earned experience. And that's what we're talking about here when we're talking about collaborating with experts. Everyone has something worthy of of saying, regardless of of their personal opinion. And that's okay. Some people are just shy, you know, and I try to get them out of their shell when we're talking during the consult or whatever. But yeah, collaborating with experts, very, very important. And there are so many pieces of food blogging that there are so many topics Mm -hmm. you could dive into. There's endless opportunity there, I think. And there's so much reward that can come from it. So I'm really glad you brought this up. Yeah. So the next issue, we've, we've talked about creating topically relevant content. We've talked about expanding what content you share on a topic. We've talked about collaborating with experts. The next really trick here is to work to link all that somatically relevant content internally correctly. Now, we just had a, a very well-received and very detailed guide to internal linking with the SEO for Publishers, the webinar that we did just last month. And it was uh, it's jam-packed with internal linking best practices. So I would urge all of you on the call to do a search for that SEO for publishers, internal linking. That tells you what you need to do to correctly and fully link your internal content. What anchor text to use, what not to do when you're doing internal linking, how many internal links are enough. What happens, does Google count all your internal links when you're using same or different anchor text? We talk about all of that and more, and that's going to be really helpful for you. Okay, can we put that guide? Do you have a link to it, Casey? I'm mm-hmm. yeah, we'll put okay. All that I was just searching for it really quick. Yeah. Just make sure that, but yeah, it just type in SEO for publishers internal link, and I'll put I'll paste it over in the chat. Okay, for you. awesome. Okay, any other predictions, Casey, for 2023 SEO or otherwise? So the last one that we're going to talk about is called increased focus by users on brand messages. And this is kind of an interesting one. We're going to use the social responsibility as a good one. I have been seeing more and more when we're doing these site surveys, we're getting a large percentage of Gen Zers and millennials because that's making up a growing number of people who are accessing your content online. These groups specifically are increasing looking to only visit sites that share their opinions and attitudes on social responsibility. Mm -hmm. So this is something that bloggers need to be aware of. And so we want to really focus in 2023 on an increased kind of a, just an understanding and an awareness of your brand messaging. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that there are some people, and I'm always surprised at the number, that will not will not even consider visiting a food blog or another blog that doesn't share their same social leanings, whether it's combating climate change, fighting for racial or gender equality, supporting LGBTQ causes, or for example, rescuing dogs or horses. You want to find the cause your audience is supporting and then consider options on your site or content to lean into that if, if you think you can do that, if it's appropriate. So, you know, I'm going to give you an example here. It's funny because I am about as anti-vegan as you can get. My idea of a salad is a fistful of lettuce covered incredibly with bacon and (laughs) eggs and uh, cheese. That's my idea of a salad. But we tend, I tend to have a lot of vegan clients because the vegan recipe niche is incredibly large, very, very large. I've always said this is a funny thing, but I audit more vegan blogs than any other sub niche of any other site by far. And one of the recent vegan sites they audited was called Rescue Dog Kitchen. It's run by John Rush, who's a a Canadian, former uh, Canadian football player. And he, his approach, and uh, the reason I believe that he will be very successful is that he has pledged to donate a percentage of all of his monthly ad income to specific rescue dog organizations because he has rescue dogs and it's a big part of his life. And that has helped set his site apart from a lot of other vegan recipe sites. 
And it's also going to make it a lot easier for him to garner press. It's also going to make it easier for him to garner a strong, supportive audience who share those similar causes and the like. And that is something that bloggers who maybe are struggling to find their voice or bloggers who are maybe looking for a way to differentiate themselves online, that's something to consider. Is there a do a blog survey, find the leanings of the majority of your visitors and see if there's a specific approach or something on the site that we could lean into with regards to your, your brand messaging. And you know, this is just something to be aware yeah. of. I believe that we're going to continue to see this focus as we head to 2023 and, and beyond. many years yes. down the road and beyond. So that's it. So I, again, those are kind of the big issues today. So kind of as a summary, again, I Number one, I think Google will continue to push out updates. Uh, we talked about the three kind of updates bloggers should know about and understand. Number two, I do think visual content uh, is still predicted to make a much larger impact in search rankings going forward. We talked about what this means and how bloggers can prepare, both with their images and their image optimizations. We talked about optimizing for entities, not keywords, and the continued rush of somatic search. I think that's going to be a big deal in 2023, as it always is every year. We talked about featured snippets. I think those are going to continue to increase. Position zero is continuing to get more and more competitive. Again, like I said, there's a zero-sum game there. We're either number one and we're, or we're not ranking, or we're either on the first two rows of the carousel or we're invisible. For someone to win, someone has to lose, so it's something to be aware of. And then finally, we talked about, you know, we talked about these kind of EAT signals continuing to push Google's definition of content, you know, how do bloggers improve EAT signals. And then finally, of course, we just talked about the, you know, increased focus by users on brand messages. And maybe it's a big deal. Maybe it's not. It's certainly a trend I'm seeing. So if you have some social causes that are close to your heart, there are clear, there seem to be clear benefits to being a little bit more front and center about that on your blogs and your marketing materials. So don't believe that that's a bad thing yeah. in many cases to minimize because I'm, I'm seeing evidence to the contrary. Casey, you went deep. This was the deepest SEO related conversation I've ever had. <laughs> this was like... I'm getting this all I'm getting this all out of my system. <laughs> this is the last podcast I'm doing for 2023. Oh. So as far as I know, you know, something may come up, but I doubt it. Yeah. So I, I wish you all a very happy and, and healthy and restful yes. holiday season. And we'll, we'll speak again, hopefully in 2023. As well. Do you have some inspiration to leave us with? Inspire us. Tell us that we we've got this or something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You, If you're listening to this call, that means that you're listening to a lot of other resources and that you're continuing to looking to improve yourself. That's the best thing that we can do. I, I know that Bjork and Lindsay over at Food Blogger Pro and with Pinch of Young, they always have that nice phrase about 1% infinity. I know you've heard it. I know a lot of people have repeated that ad nauseum. 1% infinity, infinity, very, very important. Our goal is to improve ourselves every day a little bit. I wanted to get in shape in 2022, and I've, I'm very pleased to say that I have. I've dropped a significant amount of Ooh. weight, and I finally ran a 5K last night for the oh first time in like six years. Congrats, and that's I amazing. Hate, and I hate running. You should only ever run if you're getting chased by a bear <laughs> or two, something that's really important. That's oh, it. good for you. So, that's, yeah. that's so awesome, Casey. So yeah, have, have goals. Work on those goals, and you guys got this. I wish you, wish you much, much success. Uh, as you head into the new year. All right, Casey, thank you so much for being here. We'll put together show notes for you and all of that. Where can people reach you if they want to get a hold of you? Absolutely. Well, you can reach me on Facebook. Uh, find me at Casey Marquis. You can find me at my page, my Facebook page at MediaWise, M-E-D-I-A-W-Y-S-E. My audit calendar, I'm not sure when this goes live, but my audit calendar for 2023 opens on Tuesday, January the 3rd. Not sure if this will be live before then, but I'll be booking for May, June, and July at that time. So I tend to fill up pretty fast. So if that's of interest to you, definitely make that a make a note on your calendar. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Casey. We so appreciate you. Thank you, Megan. We'll speak again soon. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Eat Blog Talk. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you posted it to your social media feed and stories. I will see you next time.